lot of people in prison are very loyal and they thought loyalty was a good thing and loyalty got us a life sentence. And what we learned was to be committed to one another's highest commitments is more important than loyalty. And what, what we mean by that is, what if men started standing for each other in their highest commitments? Hello, my friends. My name is Chad, and this is the Naked Leadership Podcast, high-stakes conversations for relentless company founders. My co-hosts and I have over six decades of combined experience in leadership coaching, and this podcast is where we explore it all. There's no conversation too risky. This week, Dan, Adrian, and I sit down with Richard Morellis. Drawing from all of his experience of being incarcerated for 21 years, from a life sentence, Richard has dedicated his life to helping other formerly incarcerated people successfully transition back into freedom. He has been out of prison for three and a half years and has made unprecedented progress in that time. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. It's beautiful, it's empowering, it's inspiring, and there's principles around every single corner. So let's dive in. Gentlemen, Adrian, Dan, how are you? Doing great, man. It's so good to be with you. I'm happy to be. Dan, I'm glad you're back in the conversation, man. We had a couple of conversations without you. I'm glad to see you're back at it. You didn't you didn't get a taste of the good life without us and leave forever. <laughs> no. No, I got to travel around and do a little bit of work, but I understand my better half was on with you guys and she had a great time. So great I'm time. excited. That Eileen's, I mean, she's going to be a regular now. So at least once a month, we're going to see Eileen or hear Eileen in the podcast. So, so good. Richard, thank you for being here, man. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's, it's only the second or third time we've talked, um, online, of course, but second or third time I've got to see Dan, you mentioned Eileen right now, and they spent at least a year of quality time in my life and 12, 13 years later, it's still it's like they're they're in my ears, you know. Um, they're not only me, but my team and the organization that we developed, and they've are still driving us by the principles that they taught us. And so, it's it's phenomenal to be here to see Dan. Um, he has a special place in my heart. Well, let's. I mean, that's a that's a beautiful uh, transition right into the story. Let's not waste any time. I, I believe you're the first ex-con that I know of that we've had on the podcast. Oh, is that true? <laughs> well, on my, on, my, on, my, on my podcast, that's it's generally all I invite. I, my podcast, <laughs> the, the, the prison posts, I just invite folks to come and share their transformational stories who have been formerly incarcerated. So, yeah. So, uh, here you go. So, tell us, uh, just, I mean, brief over overview of your story, um, where you come from. Okay, I was raised in the Central Valley to a single mom and... We we grew up in poverty in the projects, uh, Section Eight housing without a dad. And you know what? I didn't know I didn't know we were poor. I thought uh, welfare cheese and that made good quesadillas and uh, powdered milk made good uh, cereal. And um, I was loved, and I had great grandparents and little sister. But all got married around the age of ten, and um, there's a new guy in the house, and we just never gelled. And that was like the beginning of the the end for me. The 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 love and the affection, the attention, the affirmation that I had received from my mom at one time, all of a sudden seemed to be gone. 
And, you know, she's been happily married now, a second marriage for 25 years. But back then, you know, it seemed like this guy was stealing my mom's identity, wanted her to be somebody else. And um, those really weren't the values that I, that I was raised with. So I grew to resent him, hate him, you know, um, and gave myself over to a life of even in junior high and high school, drinking, drugging. You know, on the surface, it may have looked well to some people that I was the first one in my family to graduate from high school and join the Air Force. But behind the scenes, I had a a, a secret that, you know, I was a, um, a drug addict and just took myself to the limits of using drugs. And ultimately, that culminated with receiving a life sentence in prison. In 1998, I was sentenced to 25 years to life. Back then, you know, you would think that um, going to prison would be enough to change anybody. There I was with not supposed to get out until December of 2021, not even get out, but go before a parole board for a review. And some laws changed and made that possible for me to get there earlier. But while there, I remember uh, Governor Gray Davis saying, the only way a lifer will ever leave prison is in a pine box. And I believed him. There was a culture of despair. People with life didn't go home. And it was more important for me to, to get along and go along than to take a stand for those values that I was raised with, deeply who I wanted to be, but it wasn't who I was intended to be. And so I gave myself over to doing the same thing in there, but now even worse, and started using heroin in prison. And we went on a 10-month lockdown, which means you can't leave your cell. And into that nine months into that lockdown, me and my cellmate nearly overdosed on, of, on heroin. And we were at death's door on our deathbed and could barely move. And we had B.B. Um, King, The Thrill is Gone on repeat. <laughs> and um, and The Thrill was gone. And that was it. We were turning blue, could barely talk, move. And like my life flashed before my eyes. And I said, here I am. I'm going to die as a drug addict in prison. I failed my mom. I failed my grandparents. I failed my family. I failed myself. I failed society. Did nothing but harm. And here I am with a life sentence, going to die in prison. And I just said, help me, God, I don't want to die as a drug addict in prison. And that was the last time I used. That's been 22 and a half years now. That was it for me. And little by little, I stepped into a new life, started making new decisions. You know, um, they were measured with some wisdom of trying to keep myself alive in there. Like Dan says, keep the space suit alive. You know, that was that was the goal, you know, keep alive and also start fighting for new ways to transform my life. And I did that in my own way. I'd never finished a book before going to prison. Before I left, I read 750 books of leaders and history and biographies and and earned an AA degree and then a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree and um, started around 2005, really working towards serving others and finding ways to give back. You know, the until we had met Dan and he had came, him and his wife and his team came to Soledad. The culture of that prison was more criminal than responsible. And what they brought to us was a vision of something we'd never heard before that sounded crazy to us, which was, what if we could create a small island of transformation and invite others to our small island? And one day, our small island will be the big island. And the small island will be those who are committed to their criminality. And that's what we did. We achieved something absolutely phenomenal in transforming the culture of that prison. And it went from one program in the whole prison 
to 121 different programs there. A 2,000 man yard with 1,500 people in programs day and night. So before they would only let us use the cafeteria. Now the warden saw something new going on, opened up the, vi the, the visiting room, the education department, the library, the gym, so that we could be running all kinds of different programs. And those who went through our Ready for Life went out there and we, we used to call it um, uh, infiltrate. We started infiltrating and creating groups and going into groups and being the leaders in those groups. <clears throat> and we became committed to uh, transforming lives and healing that community and a lot of people in prison are very loyal and they thought loyalty was a good thing and loyalty got us a life sentence. And what we learned was to be committed to one another's highest commitments is more important than loyalty. And what, what we mean by that is what if men started standing for each other in their highest commitments? If your highest commitment is God or freedom or your family or your education. And if I'm veering off course in any of those areas, then my brother's in there could say, hey, what's going on? Whereas, and if I was to ask them to come with me to go and get in a fight, they said, no, I can't, I can't stand with you in that. I can't stand with you in that. So we, I, I met a, a group of great guys. We formed a team, started building something. In 2012, uh, we met Dan Takini and his wife, Eileen, and the team that they brought in. And we went through their three-day workshop and then their five-month workshop. And that set a whole new path in order. He um, helped create uh, some monsters, some vision casters. You know, in that prison, I think Eileen wrote a curriculum called The Quest. 1,300 people have gone through The Quest, and she taught us how to, how to lead it and coach it, and not one person has ever recidivated. And that's really our claim to, claim to fame at CROP is that we can take your recidivism rates to zero in this state. I was the first one on my team that got out. We cast a vision to start our organization in Sacramento. I came to Sacramento, fought hard for my buddies to get out. All of our core team that stuck together were all sentenced to life. We had 108 years to life altogether. And um, within 13 months, the rest of my guys were out. And they had um, 40 to life, 52 to life, 26 to life. Two were commuted by the governor. One sentence was overturned. Um, and another one sentence was overturned as well. And here we were, and we got an apartment. We met up. We started brainstorming. We found out in the reentry field, that's the organization, CROP organization is, is an acronym for Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs. And in, in the reentry field of people coming home, how do we serve those who are formerly incarcerated to have a future worth having? Most of the time, our belief about ourselves in prison is that the ceiling for who we can be and what we can do is like right here. We're about to bump our head. And in reality, the silly do ceiling doesn't exist. You ask most people that are about to get out from prison, and I'll go like one more minute, and then I'll I'll, I'll, t I'll turn it over. But you ask most people, what what are they going to do when they get out? They say, man, I don't know. I just want to get out. Yeah, but what are you going to do? Where are you going to live? What's your career? Where do you want to go? What kind of father do you want to be? You want to be a homeowner? That is what Dan and Eileen brought to us, is the ability to take the blinders off like a horse running a race and say, are you willing to dream what is possible and not just dream in a positive thinking kind of way, like you can do it, hoo hoo, rah rah, but put action behind it. Are you willing to dream first? And then what are the steps that you can take to make that happen? And once that starts happening, then we can see that we have more value than just, you know, working gig economy jobs for the sweat off our backs and 
making minimum wage and struggling on whatever, 15 to 25 dollars an hour. And so we created something where we said, we're going to close all the different silos that are out here in reentry, whether it's mental health or housing or drug and alcohol rehabilitation, career development. We're going to close all of that in and bring it under one umbrella that is holistic and heart centered. And we're going to create careers for folks or career pathways for folks where they won't make less than 60,000 a year. How are we going to do that? Careers in tech. So that's what we did. So you, if they go to our program now out here at Crop Organization and we're in Oakland and Los Angeles, they're going to get three months of leadership development. Why do we start with that? That's what Dan uh, taught us. We, we, we feel that, uh, I say humbly, not, I don't want to say mastered, but we've immersed ourselves for over a decade. And so that's our bread and butter. That is the secret sauce. Folks that go through our program will get three months of digital literacy, three months of financial literacy. We work with Google. Google comes on site and trains all of our all of those in our program and they'll get a certification that uh, one of Google's uh, certifications. We have on site bankers that come for three months and they get trained in financial literacy for everything from banking to owning a home. And then um, they get professional workplace skills with LinkedIn learning and we give them a thousand dollars a month stipend and they get free housing and parking and not six people jammed in a room like a lot of reentry organizations do, but their own room, their, their, their own uh, bathroom, a gym, parking, meals provided. And why is that? Because we want to treat people like human beings. Dan once told us, do you love people more than your ideas? And that was, <laughs> that was tough for us because we had to look in the mirror and we realized we were loving our ideas more than people. And now we lead with our hearts. If you ask them at the beginning of the program, what's the most important part of your program? They'd probably say like the digital literacy or, or the thousand dollar a month stipend or the free housing. But by the time they graduate 10 out of 10 or hundred percent, cause there's more than 10 going through it. A hundred percent will say it was the mindset work. It was the ready for life. It was the leadership for life development. So after those three months of having all those components, then they'll go through nine months of immersive training in one of three tracks, either B2B sales, um, with, um, well, in B2B sales or UX design or, um, it support. Just the other day, we met with a man named Farus, who at 32 years old from India became the head of SAP, the second largest tech organization in the world. We partner with Microsoft, Oracle blend, um, and now SAP in finding not only here's a certification now go find your job. In, in tech companies that largely won't hire formerly incarcerated people. But we created the employer development piece to invite employers to hire formerly incarcerated people. Not because, not because, you know, poor me, um, you know, I never got a chance in this world, but because of their talent, because of their commitment, because these, these, these folks are ready to go based on their mindset, their work ethic. And so that's, that's it. We, we help them with long-term housing. It's a one-year program. And that's what we're doing today. In that amount of time, we took our ideas to the state. We raised $3 million on our own through supporters and people who believed in our vision. And we took our ideas to the state. The state saw that, well, we're giving $14.2 billion a year to the correctional department, um, CDCR. Only 2.3% of that is used for uh, rehabilitative programming. And um, the recidivism rates are above 60%. These guys have a zero recidivism rate. It'll cost us a lot less. 
and uh, and they get all that holistic you know um work and a career and let me tell you when someone starts making a livable wage job having a career they have an opportunity to um they don't want to go back they don't want to go back to those old lifestyles especially when their thinking has changed the state granted us 28.5 million dollars for our first pilot program over the next three years the only constant in an organization like yours is change I want to take just a second to tell you about The Change Imperative, an ebook written by our very own Dan Tacchini. Let me ask you, how do you personally relate to change in your business? Does it feel like a threat at times? Does it ever feel like you can't keep up with it or it never happens fast enough? Are there certain players on your team that resist change and keep your company stuck? Growth, change, and transition These intersections often come with confusion, frustration, and resistance. You can flip those experiences into clarity, confidence, and alignment with the Change Imperative eBook. The Change Imperative is instructions for innovating with your team. Go ahead and click on the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Change Imperative now and feel confident about creating the change in your company necessary to take it to the next level. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> how long have you been out of prison three years and five months how many graduates do you have we did our first pilot program we graduated 15 and starting in january we will be having uh, 50 people in oakland go through and i think 40 people in los angeles oh my gosh it's, it's unbelievable man tell them a little bit I, you know i get to go back to prison because some you did some stuff that's pretty amazing even in prison did you tell me that you were the, the warden actually allowed professors and their students to come through your training. They would actually set it up so they could go through your leadership training. There was some strong teachers that they, they met us through going to college simultaneously of doing the coaching. We fell in love with coaching and, you know, there's a buzz going around and the teachers started hearing us um, talk and sound different or, you know, a n- new language um, producing new results. And so one of the college professors from a local community college asked us if they, we could do our three-day workshop with college students. And they worked it out with the warden. So in the visiting room there, they were bringing in anywhere from, start off with probably 15, but there were times they'd bring 50 to 60 um, sophomore and freshman college students. And they'd come in and sit in the visiting room and we run three-day workshops with college students. And it, it became so, there was so much transformation and buzz. I mean, it, it sounds funny, but like most people would think, well, they ought to be coming in there to train you. And they don't know what to expect. They expect guys with tattoos all over their face, talking crazy to them. And they got something different. They got people that believed in them, talked about love, talked about the power of choices, casting a vision. Um, and um, so many of those students went on to graduate. As you all know, there's so many transformational stories. But one of the cool things was that the professors and um, the deans and the presidents, you know, they 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 had to they had to get a bar of it. You know, like what's going on over there? You know, so they brought their senior team. And but you know, they say we give we pay twenty thousand dollars a year for leadership development, and they went in there for a one day training. So how do we turn three days into one day? And man, it was so emotional and transformational. They said, we got more out of this than the $20,000 we, we pay. And to this day, even in our freedom, we still do workshops with their faculty and also with their college students. It's incredible, man. 
like uh, emotional. I'm gathering myself <laughs> just just thinking about the impact. And I, I you know, I'd love to hear you talk about this experience. Like you kind of laid it out. You laid it out beautiful. The story's beautiful. Um, and you have these touch points, like like the last time you did drugs, uh, creating these programs, meeting Dan and, and Eileen, reading all of these books. Why? Why? Like what? What do you attribute that to? What changed for you that you put a stake in the ground, and and decided to create something different? Well, my my team would send their deep love uh, to Dan and Eileen. We had some ideas. We we brought together the pro social folks in the prison that were that were committed to something else. You know, we we brought together in a room twelve or fourteen people who were already committed to, you know, planting their flag to um, do something new with their life. But then once we met with Dan and Eileen, we were, we got clear on our intentions. See, we didn't know, we, we wanted to build a program, but we weren't clear. And like I sh- shared a minute ago, do you want to help people transform their lives or you do want a big old program? We envisioned some big old program. And Dan and Eileen, they listened to us and they and they helped us clarify and purify our intentions. If your intention is to have a big program, sure, you could do that. If your intention is to love people, it may be, it may be small. If, if your intention is to um, help people transform their lives, um, what, what really is your intention? And we had to discover on our own, we wanted to love people. We wanted people to transform their lives, their thinking. We believe it started with identifying those beliefs and those thinking patterns that got us our best results of life sentences in prison. And then how could we interrupt them and transform transform them? Once we did that, the big program was, was inevitable. It would come. So I think it was them helping us uh, clarify, clarify our intentions and then do the hard work. Most people in prison, the, the groups that come in or outside organizations, they hold the bar very low for us. You know, you do anything good, they pat you on the back and, oh, I'm so proud of you. You're so good. You know, they, they, and and Dan and Eileen came in and they're, they're <laughs> you know, it was, Eileen told the story one time. She said, I wanted the pat on the back. I was valedictorian in there and the president of Toastmasters at the time. I was, um, I had taught, I had read so many books and done this and done that. And, you know, I was living from moment, moment those kudos from the outside guests and from my peers. And Eileen said, look, I'm not here. I'm here. You got to think of us as like football coach. You've won the game. It's 40 to zero. You guys won the game. Now we're going to go watch the film. And Rich, you could have had an interception for a touchdown right there. Did you see how you missed that block? Did you see how you did this? Did you did that? I'm like, what are you talking about? We won 40 to zero. Why were you bringing out all these things? She said, I'm not here to pat you on the back. I'm helping you. I'm here to help you to become the very best human being that you can be. And nobody else was doing that for us. And that was like taking a stand for who we could be and what we could do in this world. And that was, I don't know, that was revolutionary for us. So they were willing to tell us the hard things. They were willing to put up a mirror to us and really um, show us. Dan did the same thing. You know, I, I, I'll tell a quick story of, I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be, um, Dan once said a nice, Sometimes nice guys are secret haters. I told him why I wasn't honest to somebody once. And he told me, 
I told him I wanted to be a nice guy. He said, he said sometimes nice guys are secret haters. I didn't like hearing that, but I knew I found out what he meant. But I wanted to impress them. I went last on my team in, when they were training us. I rewrote the manual three times. In fact, one, they told somebody in the feedback session to be creative. So I said, okay, I'll get creative. And I changed one of the charts and I delivered a 20 minute um, filmed part of the seminar with a new chart. And Eileen was there and she's flipping through her manual. She you knows she's like going like this and I'm seeing her. And then finally, when I came to feedback from Eileen, she's like, where'd you get that chart? And I said, it's on page such and such. And she's like, no, it isn't. Why did you change it? That's you changed the chart to something else. Why'd you do that? And I started getting defensive and a little bit irritated. And like, I think I did pretty well. Like, I don't, the, I think it's a great addition. I think it's a great addition to the chart, by the way. And she said, my husband has done this a hundred times or whatever the number was. And he uses that chart every time. And I'm just wondering, and, and maybe she didn't know, or maybe she just sniffed something out. I'm wondering why on your first time you'd change the chart. And to me, it comes across as a little bit arrogant. And I said, well, I was trying to be creative. You said be creative. I was victimized. You said be creative, you know? And, um, and well, she said, I don't know, but, um, you know, something to consider. Maybe arrogance is in other areas of your life. I don't know. Think about it. You have it. Eileen nailed, by the way. That yeah, is Eileen. Perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Because yeah. I don't know about that. Something to consider, but something to consider. I don't know, Richard. Yeah, maybe there's some other place. Maybe there's some. Maybe there's some other place in your life. I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> I wish so, you'd talk to me like that. <laughs> I was in the moment defensive, and but I knew it when she said arrogance. I knew it. My grandma used to say, "Boy, you need to eat crow. You need to humble yourself. You need to listen. There's always going to be somebody in this world telling you what to do." You're so cocky. You're so arrogant. You're going to get yourself in trouble one day. And sure enough, it was my own arrogance that got me. And so she hit a nerve right there. And I didn't reveal that at the moment. In the moment, I was defensive and angry and Dan's watching me. And in that moment, Eileen went harder than anyone had ever been on me since I've been in prison for 12 years already. Actually, it was 14 years already. Then Dan came next. And he was kind of like the good cop. You know, the, she was a bad cop. He was a good cop. And he's like, why did you, you know, Tell me about how you prepared her. So I, I told him and I started rapid firing. I said, man, I rewrote, rewrote the manual. I care about this. You know, look, I typed this. You know, there's no there's no um, computers in prison. I typed this whole thing out three different ways. And I had look. he's like, let me see those. He started being playful. He's like, let me see your notes. And then he said, Does any, did anybody else do this? And nobody else had done it. And he said, son, why are you working so hard? And no one had called me son. I didn't talk to my dad for 22 years. And no one had said son. And he didn't have to say son. But in that moment, he just saw, <laughs> he just saw something. That, I don't know what he saw, but it was a moment of empathy and compassion. And he asked it in a way without judgment. But um, why did you do all this? And my initial response is, was, I, wanna, I want you guys to, to know that I can do this one day. In other words, I want you to believe in me. I'm here with life. I don't know if I'm ever getting out, but I want somebody to believe in me. And I'm doing a lot of good things, but I don't even know if I'm, if I'm really a new person. But if you can believe in me, then I can believe in me. There was only one male role model growing up, which is my grandfather 
homeowner, Vietnam vet, man of the community. And he was the only model that I saw. And I could hear his words through Dan, like, why are you doing all this? And Dan said to me, where does your value come from? And I'm, I'm a man of faith. And I said, from God. And he asked me again, where does your value come from? I said, from God. He said, in theory, in theory. And I knew it right there. In theory, I would tell you that my value came from God. But in, in, in reality, in the way I was living my life, my value was coming from the approval of others. I wanted to prove, prove my value to others. And if they gave me a kudo, then I could go to the next day. And he said, don't work hard for your value. I don't care if you accomplish another thing. You are infinitely valuable. Work hard for, for your future. Work hard to be a homeowner, a good husband. Um, work hard for some of the things you may want in life, but don't work hard for your value. That night I could not sleep. And I realized, one, I was hiding arrogance and being arrogant in a lot of other areas of my life. Like Eileen pointed out, it was like, hit the nail on the head, you know, like, boom, that was the bad part. The other bad part was I was working for value. And that, and I said, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. I would send home degrees and my grandma would put them on her fridge. And my cousins would say, that's good, grandma. We'll see what he does when he gets out. And that would fuel anger in me. I'd be like, oh, you don't believe me with a bachelor's degree? I'm going to show up with a $100,000 job with an with a MBA or a doctorate. Then you'll believe me. you know. And now I don't care if you believe me or not. That says more about you than it does about me. I'm going to live my life and um, with my purpose, whether I'm believed or not. That's, where, that's really what, what there's stories like that from all of my team of our transformational moments that we, and once that, once that was gone, once we could not gone, but still there, like Dan used to say, like, like an old friend that air, you, you hear arrogance in your ear, you know? Um, but it no longer, we no lo longer allow those ways to rule us. That doesn't mean they don't come up at times, but they don't rule me anymore as they did at one time. Yeah. Dad, you know that um, Adrian was the one who basically brought me to the prison. Did you know that? Yeah. So I met Adrian at a training and he hired me to develop that curriculum. And then he introduced me into the prison. Then he had moved on from the company and I just completed the work that I was doing there. So I, I didn't know if you knew that connection. So he worked, he ran Jesse's um, organization and had hired me, sought me out and hired me. Yeah. So th that's the it's connection really, there. Thank, thank you, Richard, for, yeah. holy cow. I, I don't know if I've ever been on a podcast where it's like, can we go on for five hours, please? Because we're just getting started. <laughs> You've said so much. And I, we could, I definitely have follow-up questions just to reveal, I don't know if listeners are that emotional. I know Dan and Chad and I are crying over here, uh, just connecting with just the authenticity here. So I just want to reveal the, I naturally want to reveal the road that you've been on to get to this level of insight and authenticity. And I'm thinking about listeners that, that listen into this, that have their own companies, that have their own teams. And, and, you know, one of the things that you said really quickly, a distinction you made really quickly, that uh, is, a, is a whole world of difference. 
and you've made lots of them now. I could pick from the dozens, but um, one of them is like the shift between what's the distinction between an idea and an intention? Because, you know, they could see the fruit, right? I mean, who, who, I don't know who, I don't know who makes this type of a difference inside anywhere in the criminal justice system, let alone creating an organization like you've created now, creating partnerships in the business world. I don't, I don't know that there's a person on the planet that's done it at this level. So we see that fruit and I want to get connected to the origin of it. And one of those distinctions is you had an idea and it, and, and instead you got to see what the power of the, you know, you could have gone and created a program, but instead you clarified your intention. Can you talk about that for a second? Because I think people that are building something have a lot of great ideas and aren't getting results. And that there might be some gift for them in that distinction between having a great idea and living in intention. Can you make that distinction? I think so. I, I think that all of us, on the one hand, we wanted to build programs and do great things. And part of it was was to help us um, to get out and come home and create some kind of career. And part of it was to help others transform their lives. But not everybody wanted to do it, right? In in their what? How do you know? You know, there are conflicting intentions. You know, on the one hand, I want to weigh less than two hundred pounds. On the other hand, I want to eat cheeseburgers and pizza, you know, and drink soda. So one's going to win out. Um, and when we were able to get clear, like, what are you intending? We lost a lot of people. Like we, 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 we had a team of 25 people. And so we did the work of getting behind the scenes and clarified our intentions. And some went on to be firefighters and some went on to be plumbers. And that's all right. You don't, you don't have to do this work, right? But get clear and then we parted ways. We're still buddies, right? But for those who got clear here, then we doubled down. And then we then we were able to say, okay, what is it going to take to build a rock solid, state-of-the-art reentry organization? You know, I talked about the 28.5 million. It wasn't a grant. It was the first time in California history where we were added to the workforce development budget, right? That's historic. So one of the things we had to do is say, well, what will it take from us moving forward? Here's four of us, four of us moving forward. What will it take to build out an organization that's statewide and hopefully nationwide? And Dan used the word culture. What if it was possible to transform the culture of this prison? So what was the same principle there? People talk about that for, in companies out here in you know Fortune 500s. I don't know if it was from Dan, but somewhere along the way, we, we read culture will eat strategy for breakfast any day of the week. And for us, and for us, we had to say, okay, what does that mean? So we came up with some principle. I think we learned it in um, good to great. First who, then what? First who, who's committed to this work? And then, and then what are we going to do? But you had to get the who first, get intentional and and do the work of looking at if you have a conflict no bad we'll still be buddies but if you want to go and, and and be a firefighter or a plumber or, or or whatever else go do that and then um so anyways yeah once we got clear on that we were able to um create space for all the details of the program right then you liken it to a bus you know we're going to get the right team on the bus and then we're going to get the right people in the right seats and once we have that, now we can do anything, you know, reentry, 
you know, uh, whatever, sell tacos and it's going to be great. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, this is one of these, I, I, I click on this because it's like, uh, there's a lot of invisible components to what you're saying. And I think it's really helpful to put language around it. Cause I know people suffer under ideas that don't work and they don't even know what's missing. And you, and you, it's so in your, it's so in who you are, right? It doesn't even naturally even flow out for you. It's like, it's still, and I want to always make these distinctions for folks. And this comes up in lots and lots of conversations I'm in with founders. So one of the, one of the principles that just is so natural for you now is if I become what I say, if I declaring something about the future it and I decide to become that, like this decide that that idea isn't an idea, it actually, it, it inhabits my body. Then I am that, right? I am that commitment. And that's like when that shifts, like from an idea to an intention, like I am this. And that what that naturally does is calls other people to sacrifice. It clarifies the field. Some people left and said, oh, no, thanks. I'm not into that. I'm going to go do this thing and no big deal. But you're signing up for suffering, especially like all of us are human beings. We love people to like us and follow us. And a big crowd feels better than a small crowd, I mean, to our ego. And you had to let the big crowd go. You didn't have to. You decided that it was so real for you, you weren't going anywhere else. And that type of commitment generated an environment where people got to opt in or opt out if they wanted to match your commitment or not. And that's like, you know, a lot of founders that are struggling keep selling people on an idea instead of being their commitment and letting people opt in or opt out and letting some great talented people go because they don't, they aren't willing to live the sacrifice needed to generate the future you're talking about. And you've done that obviously at, uh, with spades, like exponentially, and you do it so naturally and you're, you know, so that's why it's like, I want people I know we, we've, in our limited time we've got today, I want people to get kind of at least some of that. There's so much secret sauce here that I don't want it to be a secret. Like this is- Everybody's heard it said like, if you want to be happy, choose a career doing something you love, right? And a lot of people, for whatever reason, um, are in jobs or careers, you know, and, and, and I'm not knocking anybody, but you do what you have to do until you can do what you want to do. You know, you're, you're, but, or you're at a place where you're miserable and they're unwilling and for all the stories we tell ourselves to go and do something they love. But once you get to the place, like when you find your purpose, when you find your why, if you find your why, you can find your way. And when you're living in your why and living out your purpose, what you discover is it becomes a natural expression of who you're committed to being in this world, right? It doesn't feel like work. That's part of the reason I got married out here and I had to learn, like, you can't go work 15, 16 hours a day, but it's not feeling like work. I could be at this computer all day because the vision's so far out. We went from four employees to 16. We'll have 40 at the end of the year. So now there's the hiring process. Now there's the enrollment process. Now there's getting buy-in into the vision. And with the 16 that we have, yeah, I, I have to tell them now, hey, you got to take, take some self-care, take the weekend off because they're so committed to the vision and, and the enrollment process and the culture we do culture building meetings uh, once a week and we get together and they're in. And then there's a, it's so beautiful to see this is a natural expression of, of who they're committed to being in this world, to providing an opportunity for others to transform their lives. There's nothing, there's really nothing outside of being married or having kids or a relationship with God. 
I have nothing more powerful in my life than to see someone who thought that all that they could do, like me, my dad said, you're not smart enough to, to go to college. You're not, you're not disciplined enough to go to the military. Um, so you better learn how to push a shovel. And I remember based on results, I never imagined any other career outside of myself other than construction. Today, I work it on the back end of our website, hosting a podcast, doing digital marketing, uh, Bitcoin investing, and done pretty well. So the, these are all things that I've only stepped into after getting out and immersing myself. Oh, you don't know how to know? You don't know how to do it? Here's what Dan gave us. If you don't know, we don't know, we don't know. Okay, how could you know? Well, what I did was I YouTube, Google, and reach out to people from all kinds of different companies around the world on LinkedIn and be surprised. Somebody spent 30 years in Silicon Valley. I get on a Zoom with them. I send an email, get on a Zoom, share my story. I'm willing to help you. I'm willing to mentor you for free. That's how I learned. YouTube, Google, and, and mentors who have been doing it. How did I know to do that? What requests do you need to make? What, what support do you need? Are you willing to do it? Um, what, what's blocking you? What may be limiting you? Are you willing to step beyond that? What will it take to step beyond that? Living in the question. And what I hear you say, Adrian, is also, you know, are you committed to giving your word or living as your word? Once you begin living as your word, man, it's powerful, powerful. <laughs> well, you know, I just in closing, I, I remember saying to Eileen about your crew, I, you know, when you guys came through, I said, you know, people can do this work poorly. They can do it well. They can do it excellently. But these guys, they want to be elite, man. They want to. Uh, the the edge in that room was so evident that it brought the best out of me. I, I wanted to give nothing but my, you know, my best with you guys. And, um, you know, other people go on, everybody's doing the work, whether they become a plumber or a carpenter, it's their, t the work is who they are. And you're really helping people, uh, you know, you're providing a catalyst for people to presence themselves in an authentic way, like to bring, to come out from behind themselves and, and to really, experience what life is. I've seen it. I've seen the work that you've done. And when I was there, at least, I imagine it's much, you know, you've, you've got some experience now, a lot of experience. I'd, I'd love to see what you're doing, but I, you're nothing but an inspiration to me, man. You lit me up today. I'm, I'm going to be walking on clouds for the rest of the day. So. On behalf of, I love you too, man. What I learned from Eileen was what's the opposite arrogance, humility. And I have one wristband here. You can't really see it that much, but it has the word humility on it. And then Dan, one day, he don't know this, but he wore a leather wristband that said bold. And I had and I had that wristband on me every day since being out bold and humility. And they're like anchors for me out here. I did a three day seminar and um, workshop in um, San Jose and there was a gal who needed boldness. So I gave her my bracelet. But um, what you brought to our team, and you think about the work that we're doing today, we remember our roots. And it was that I'm not going to go out and be an astronaut or a police officer, right? But there's so much more within my reality. If I'm willing to step into empowering myself, don't blame the state. Don't blame anybody. Look in the mirror, own your choices and create new and create a future that you want. What is it you want? Allow yourself to dream. And when we bring that to others out here, zero recidivism, nobody going back, people becoming homeowners, servants in their communities, um, great fathers, husbands, it's amazing. Yeah, our aim in the program, Adrian and I had talked about this when we went in there, is rather than to create trainers, was to create change agents. That's really what we were aiming at. 
and to see you and hear you, man, you give me goosebumps everywhere. Thank you. You're on, you're uh, Chad. I think you're on mute. I didn't hear you. That I am. I just said mission accomplished, man. <laughs> Created some change agents. This has been incredible, Richard. I, I would love to know, I, I, like Adrian, I was like, can we just keep going for hours and hours? I, I want to know, is there anybody who's listening that is touched by the story, believes in the purpose um, of crop? Is there a way for them to get involved, support? Where do you point people that say, well, that, that I would really like to put my name on that? That's a great question. Thank you so much. Um, they can go to croporganization.org on our website. They, you can even type in croporg.org. It'll pop up. We're on all social media, you know, Twitter. <laughs> I, I was running 13 social media channels at one time, uh, going, running, running wild out here, but uh, getting some help now. And yeah, Twitter, Facebook, creating restorative opportunities on Facebook, on Twitter, Crop Organization. And, um, and, um, on LinkedIn as well, but really our, our website, and we have an application. We're accepting applications for this, uh, LA and Oakland. Our cohort will begin in uh, January. And, um, uh, we have a goal, a vision of 390 people in careers in tech, making over 60,000 a year that are formerly incarcerated at the end of these three years. And, um, we've had some phenomenal people join our vision and believe in it and believe in us people from uh, microsoft and sap amazing people who are vision casters as well and there's that common denominator and they're just crazy enough to believe in and we are too and it really isn't about being crazy it's just about believing in people how'd you come up with the number 390 well we said 500 and the state scaled us down <laughs> we said we could do 500 <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, a numbers thing of what it would take to train, um, to take that many people through in three years and di two different cities. But our goal would be to take the program to all the different cities, the major cities who need the most uh, help with reentry in California, and then to other states after that. And um, so, yeah, we, we, we said 500 the state and said, well, let's start with 390. And if you do that, <laughs> there'll be more funding. <laughs> Well, if you, yeah, go get it, man. I believe it. Um, Richard, thanks again, man. I'd love to end on this. Um, knowing that most of the people that listen to this podcast, company founders, and all of the experience that you have in leading people. I mean, I was just thinking here for a minute, it's like so many, we get so many complaints from our clients and just from founders that we get to talk to about the people that they lead, the people on their team. And I'm thinking, well, why don't you try leading a group of prisoners, right? Like, <laughs> leading, leading a group of criminals. Uh, so just the experience that you've had is just unbelievable. Any final thoughts for them as they struggle, as they work through challenge, as they build, as they dream, as they question where the bar is, all of that sort of stuff? I'd say if you're a founder and a CEO organization, or you have a team of founders, you have to, John Maxwell once said, People don't care how much you know. I mean, you got the title. People don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. If you, if people, if you're, whether your employees or those you're serving believe in you, then they'll believe the vision. But if they don't believe in you, they don't buy into you, they'll never buy into the vision. You, you, can, get, you can replace the vision, but if they don't buy into you, that you care about them, once people know that you care about them, 
they're willing to follow. They're willing to go where you go. You know, they'll, 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 um, own the vision of your company in the way that you want it to. But if it's about you and you're complaining about them, you know, and that's another thing I would say, anytime you have a complaint, you have to look in the mirror first. Anything that's going on that you're complaining about is only feedback for you. It's feedback. So what is it about me that my company, this is happening to my company? You know, if people are slacking or gossiping or stealing or I don't know, what, whatever people do, you know, not, not putting in a full eight hour day, you know, that's feedback for you. So look in the mirror first and own that. And then um, what are you modeling? So I think that, and then I think the most important thing is loving your team. If they know that, if they know that you care about them, I love my team. And with the 16 people we hired and they see that we all care about each other and love each other, we come together, they feel loved. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing we won't do. There's other nonprofits out there. They hate their, they hate their executive director. Nobody talks well of each other. They're unwilling to have difficult conversations. We make ourselves available to have difficult conversations. Even, even, even uh, with your closest friends, you know, we have to have them. Um, so you have to be willing to have the difficult conversation, love people and invite them to feel cared for. And they'll, <laughs> they'll, believe, they'll believe in the vision for your company or they'll go do something else. Awesome. Thank you, Richard. Yeah. Beautiful, man. This is such Love a great you, addition to our conversation. I'm, I'm so honored and so grateful. Absolutely. Thank you. And if they don't believe what I'm saying, because I'm formerly incarcerated, go read some great leadership books. I read 150. They're all saying the same stuff. <laughs> 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 all right. Bye-bye, everybody. All right. Love you, Dan. Well, my friends, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Naked Leadership Podcast. As a heads up, every Friday we post a Cliff Notes version of that week's conversation with all the highlights in under five minutes. Check that out for a quick and powerful reminder of the principles discussed. I hope this conversation has been valuable to you. If it has, the greatest compliment you could pay us is sharing it with somebody who could use it. Thanks so much for listening. And until next week, bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.